Welcome to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Roche. And this week, we are talking about Marvel Studios, Ant-Man, and the Wasp, Wanamania. But I also have to warn you that this episode of Marvel's Voices may hold a couple of spoilers. So go watch the movie and then come back. Like, come immediately back because I had a chance to talk to a key member of the crew. Will Tay was the production designer on Ant-Man and the Wasp. Mania. He has been a concept and art designer for more than two decades, working on movies like No Time to Die, World War Z, Jupiter Ascending, and a number of Star Wars projects like The Force Awakens, Rogue One, Solo, Kenobi, and Andor. I had a chance to talk with him about working with the creative team on this larger and smaller than life film. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Can you introduce yourself for those who may not be familiar with your really fun career and the work you do? My name's Will Tay, and I was the production designer on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Your job as a production designer is so important to the movie, but I'm going to guess that a lot of the audience probably doesn't know what that actually means. <laughs> Can you just kind of break it down? Can you explain it to us? A lot of people don't know what, and funnily enough, I, I, I was on a call last night with a lot of production designers, and a lot of people don't know what we do. So, you know, we principally oversee the look of the film. So we're, we're working with the director and the producer and sometimes the studio themselves, and we are overseeing the look of the film from set design to props to locations, thinking about the colorways of the film, right through to the image making, because we're there before a cinematographer comes on. So we're actually putting everything in front of the camera, right? We're even thinking about the lighting as well. You know, we could be thinking about all of those different things. We work pretty closely with costume designers, as I did on this. We obviously work very closely with the director on this. Director Peyton Reed, who directed all three Marvel Studios Ant-Man movies, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's just trying to breathe life into the script and begin to visualize it. So it's a really big creative role. But it's also a really practical role as well, because we have to make sure that the sets and the locations and the props and everything are ready and the set decoration is ready for the rest of the crew to come in and actually shoot it. But also it can be technical. You know, we've, we have stunts and special effects and we have all this sort of interaction between the different departments. And we are the kind of nexus for that. We are the, the central repository for all that information in production. So, you know, I literally have everyone coming through my office going, hey, what's going on? <laughs> I'm supposed to know. Wow, you sound like a trained conductor, and that's amazing. For you, you get a script. What's the first thing you do? How does your role kind of begin? Well, sometimes you don't get a script. So the first thing you do is ask for a script. <laughs> you might get a treatment sometimes. And you, you kind of break it down, you, you first and foremost talk to the director about their vision for what this show wants to be, right? And in this instance, obviously, there's a lot of legacy stuff that's gone on. You know, there, there are two previous Ant-Man films, plus there's the connection to the whole of the MCU as well. Plus, it's 
multiversal. So you've you've got all of those things and this show it was the quantum realm was the, was the big thing but with any picture with any movie you're trying to work out visually how to tell the story from the get-go and quite often I will sit and read the script and I might start doodling and thumbnailing and the and, well once upon a time I used to thumbnail and doodle on a piece of the actual script pages we don't get those anymore it's all digital so I've got a pad of paper and I'm doodling away as I'm thinking about it and quite often that comes out as little drawings which are moments and scenes and that helps me begin to build a kind of visual language and then I go fairly quickly into a lot of research thinking about the characters the colorways the sets the environments where we need to be and what we need to show the audience and sometimes what we don't want to show them as well you know you're kind of playing a trick on the audience right that's filmmaking and it's a conversation it's a continuous conversation creative conversation that you're having primarily with the director and then with the producers and as I said sometimes the studio but as other co-creatives come on board you know you costume designer come on board and you want to talk to them about it all because particularly when you're talking about colors and textures and how you want to represent certain characters and portray them the cinematographer comes on board you know they're going to have a particular view on sometimes you know we will do concept art and it will show certain types of lighting and generally speaking that really goes down really well with 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 DOPs because it gives them a sense of what's already come before in terms of the discussions and then like I said there's you know there's there's all the other key heads of the department I mean from from the cinematographer's gaffer from a practical point of view how the, how on earth are we going to light that set well where have we where are we going to put the lights that's always a good one costume designer stunts you know, you, you, we, we have to sometimes rebuild sets for stunts, you know, second unit work. You have to get into making softs and that might be in weapons or it might be bits of the set itself. So the stunt performers don't actually hurt themselves and have to think about rigging points and where are we going to put the mats and where are we going to put the crash boxes. Well, sometimes you might even have another stage that you have to kind of mock out in a proxy fairly early on. Whilst we're still designing the set sometimes so that they can start blocking out scenes too. So the production designer is heavily involved in a whole sequence of events. And, you know, any production designer, and I will certainly say this of myself, is only as good as my supervising art director, who's Nick Gottschalk on on Ant-Man. And we have a coordinator, we have several art directors, assistant art directors, drafts people, model makers, concept artists. You know, all of these people help realise the kind of art and turn that into a practical form for the other filmmakers. And on top of that, we have property master and a set decorator as a designer. You work very closely with them. So they're thinking about a lot more of the details, like what do the curtains look like? What does the wallpaper look like? What, what would that person have in their home? You know, if you, let's just say it's just a typical home, what would, it, what, would it, what would it look and feel like? What would their taste be? And that tells you something about a character, right? And sometimes the absence of that stuff as well, again. So, yeah, there's a ton of interaction and conversations that one has to have. So those first few days or weeks where it's just you, a script and a director is precious because that's your kind of one-on-one time. And it's, it's those early ideas where you're spitballing ideas. That's the kind of the genesis of everything else. And that time, that sort of soft prep is super, super important. What kind of research did you do before diving into this project? And are there any cool new facts you learned while building it out? Gosh, my, my memory is terrible now, but uh, you go for this sort of multi-stranded approach, right? So I read a bit about quantum mechanics and quantum theory, and ultimately 
just some of those ideas doesn't necessarily work for a, for a Marvel show. But it, I think it kind of then inspired me to then spin off into looking at the different aspects of how we could visually portray this idea of a sub subatomic level where it's outside of time and space. That that became the really big thing. How can you visually show that? So that was one of the key things. Another was they really wanted to make the quantum realm inhabited and multicultural, multi-species, right? So it's just this melting pot. It also had to act as a prison for Kang, our main antagonist. So with all of that, I then started to piece together these ideas that the quantum realm is just this abundance of different energy levels. This is going to sound completely <laughs> stupid and crazy and quantum physicists are just going to hate me. But there's an abundance of energy and different energy levels. So what we wanted to do is, even though we know the quantum realm doesn't exist and we, it's all going to be very reliant on, on visual effects, we wanted to have at least an idea that it could be tangible. By that, I mean, we wanted to have kind of hard surfaces at times when we needed them. So the, the kind of logic that we created was, or I created, was when there's a kind of an absence of energy or energy has been used up, that material changes and it becomes sort of petrified or becomes like a rock. Or if it has a different, a slightly different energy state, it becomes the quantum version of metal. And therefore you could kind of then put colors to it and treat things in different textures and surfaces, as well as have a kind of biological system that, that integrated with that. At the same time, I was looking at some images and I found this, I think it was some sort of geode or, or something which had, I was looking at wax structures that, that were poured through water. And this is the kind of visual inspiration. And I found these kind of bubbles within bubbles. And the idea of the quantum realm in my mind became this idea of this tiny, tiny, tiny particle that is bubbles within bubbles and they're constantly moving around and through one another. So you have this kind of concave, convex surfaces in which different universes or landscapes can exist and rub alongside one another. It's only when you kind of go around the corner that you then see it and then you may change scale as you pass through it. We wanted to also just create something where there weren't necessarily horizontal horizons. We wanted these kind of curving, arcing horizons and bizarre skies and weird ways of lighting. So all of this began to sort of make sense to us. And also, you know, talking to Peyton, we've got a real love of, of kind of comic books and graphic novels and so there was that kind of bubbling away in the background and then obviously there's all the kind of legacy of marvel and kang himself so you look at that too you know you look at the kind of marvel legacy comic book stuff and you begin to extrapolate out of that and going back to this idea that i wanted to basically make the quantum realm a prison for kang so you have this kind of omnipotent scientist right who is trapped there. And I thought, well, how frustrating for him. If, if he is literally surrounded by energy, he has all the resource there. He has everything. He, he essentially commands an army of what became the quantum noughts. And I wanted him to draw upon all the peoples of the quantum realm and subjugate them and turn them into this sort of army. And the idea of the time sphere, which had been, I guess, sabotaged by Councillor Kang's. There were kind of different little storylines that were changing through pre-production at the time. We were exploring different ideas that essentially became, I think, the, the kind of through thread for, for Kang's story. So the frustration for him to, first of all, he doesn't know where he is. Janet discovers him. 
And then over time to discover that they have all the resource down there to do it, apart from the one thing that he doesn't have and the quantum realm doesn't have naturally occurring is the pin particles, which Janet has brought to the party, I suppose. And by her kind of creating this thing that we call the blight, where she smashes the engine core, this multiversal engine core together, I sort of came up with this concept that the multiversal engine core, these kind of concentric rings and spheres, much like a sort of three but four dimensional clock and map, like a, a, a sort of a navigational device, is the engine core. And that, that goes into the time sphere, which is this kind of seated arrangement. And, you know, a lot of people kind of joke about the massive cup holder on the side. That was actually the, the, the core that sleeves into it. The idea of that is that that time sphere in the engine core is Kang's kind of power and then he gets his suit back, which elevates him again to another kind of power level, which allows him to build his chronopolis, I guess. And the idea of that was what if chronopolis had been multiple experiments that Kang had performed using quantum energy, using all the stuff that he could find down there to basically try and get his way out. Even the chronopolis itself almost becomes like a cage to him. That chronopolis itself is like a giant version of his time sphere, but it becomes his kind of forward operations base. That's the idea. The logic is when he gets the core back, plugs it into his city, it becomes basically like a battle station that he can then take back out into the multiverse and wreak havoc from any point in time. That's the kind of logic behind what I was trying to create for him. I love this because what I hear in all of this is there is such a huge love for the comics. But beyond the comics, what does the coordination look like here? You're working with art design, props, and so many other departments. There's so many pieces involved. How do you facilitate that level of collaboration? So that comes through having, and this is true of any film, of any scale, where you have a production designer, a supervising art director, and, and the art department who become this sort of hub. You can't achieve these things without all of these really talented people who, again, you know, we all have this huge creative streak going through all of us, and we all want to design and make art and do all these cool things. But also we have to realize them in some way. We have to make them, even though, even if it's the art or feeding VFX, you know, whether that's through art and design or we're actually handing over actual assets for them to then build upon again, right? Or give them real references to, to actually photograph and shoot. You know, VFX teams love to have some actual reference of can you blow that up for yeah, we can blow that up for you, you know, towards special effects. We'll build something, blow it up. The art department is this hub. And it's so important because it becomes this sort of ever-evolving repository of information, right? With this conduit to help all of us as filmmakers make whatever it is that we're trying to make. What does a day-to-day -day look like during actual production? So we could be doing several weeks of prep before they even roll a camera. So getting the sets ready, we will be leapfrogging sets. So we might have a couple of sets to get going. So when the main unit rolls in, they'll be able to shoot on this set. And we have a whole schedule that, again, the art department drive this because there are certain build times that are required to actually make those things you know camera ready as it were plus you also have this leapfrog of second unit so you've got to do this sort of dozy doe between main unit and second unit and second unit for those who don't know generally come in and shoot the kind of stunts and explosions and those sorts of other effects 
so you've kind of got this big dance that's happening through production. But yeah, when, when, when you're shooting, I am still tend to be in the drawing office. I do like to go down to set and see what's going on. And then I could still be designing stuff. You know, you could easily be designing well up until halfway through actual shooting still for sets that are coming at the back end, simply because of the scale of stuff or, or you're only receiving information at that point in time. So it's a bit of a juggling act. And I'm sure just like a script, there are things that, you know, you would have thought were going to work or would have been practical, but the way things have shifted or, you know, for whatever reason, I'm guessing you have to go back and revamp things. Yeah, yes, certainly. So, so for example, the Celestium is a good example of that, where we had this huge 100-foot diameter build with, I think it was something like two kilometers of LED cable running through it, right? So it was a big set up on... I think it was like six foot, eight foot decks because we had a we had a special gimbal to move the time sphere in it. Integrated lighting throughout it, blue screen all the way around it. You know, at one point we were like, do we use LED screens? Do we use grey? Do we use blue? You know, we, you have all these sorts of different conversations. And then that set required in the, in the script, it required it to be destroyed. So we literally had to take a saw a chunk out of it paint some of it blue, but some of it we had to bring in rubble. We had to manufacture quantum rubble and dress it into the set and have cables and sparks. And again, you get special effects. And you, you've got to coordinate with all that. And then you've got to have softs made because there's a there are fight sequences between Jonathan and, and, and Paul, which you know, is their stunt team as well. So you have all these different things. And again, you need to then be able to shoot on another set, all in pre-production and planning. You know, it's, it's so pre-production is where all mistakes are made, but also where all your solutions will be found as well. <laughs> So I want to kind of take a step back to you and your career, right? Like you've worked on World War Z, Jupiter Ascending, Star Wars projects, right? Did you know you always wanted to work in this line of work? And and what draws you to it? I worked out that I wanted to do film pretty much when I realized I probably wasn't going to be an astronaut. So you bring other people to space now? Yeah, yeah, I I can do that. Yeah, that's no problem. If you want a spaceship, I can give you a spaceship. I was a complete nerd and geek at school, and I, I loved space, but I, I loved movies and I, and all sorts of, of of movies. You know, I would go to cinemas in London, go like go and see lovely art house films, and also go and see great big temple films. For me, it's all art and culture; it's all valid, and I love it all. I mean, I did a Bond film, which is again a slightly more fantastical film itself, and I, I used to design commercials and music videos, and then moved into. So when I didn't go and be an astronaut, I went to art school in London and trained as a theatre designer. So I loved theatre as well. But I particularly loved the moving image and I specialised in film design. No one in my family had anything to do with film or art or culture whatsoever. And art school was this amazing playground for me. It's the three best years of my life, working with other artists and designers. And I got offered a job on Luc Besson's Fifth Element which I turned down because I knew nothing about film <laughs> and then missed out on the opportunity because I wanted to graduate. I'd worked really hard to graduate. Had six weeks to go, turned down the job, graduated, got my degree, got a great degree, went to go and get a job, no job there. So that was my first kind of lesson in film. Long story short, I ended up designing lots of music videos and commercials and what have you. And then I really wanted to get back into film. And I got a job as an illustrator on World War Z and basically didn't look back. I just started concept designing because I could design stuff and draw and I could also run budgets. I'd done a lot of that through doing commercials as well. 
and doing doing meetings, presentations, meetings, all of that. So that's also part of the job, right? You know, you have to be fiscally responsible as well as creatively responsible for what we create. It's a fun job. It's, it's tough. You know, I've got a family and there's a lot of time away from home. But, you know, I feel very privileged in my job. The world of work, certainly within this industry, is is changing for the better, I think. We really make a, a point of you know, people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, all of that. Particularly for someone like me, who, who wasn't t- typical of the British film industry, to start to work my way up through that. It's going in the right direction, though. But there's always more work to do. The season's Marvel's Voices theme is talking about the work that goes into not just diversity, but like inclusivity, like bringing people to the table and making sure, you know, they stay in the industry. Or be made aware of the industry. I mean, just look at the the, the head of this, the top of this, talking about production design. Most people don't even know what it is who are even so-called knowledgeable about film, right? I mean, you could talk to movie critics and a lot of them, Half of them won't know what production design really is. So how is some kid from somewhere going to know anything about this? And it's not, I don't mean just about for art department and design. It's about all aspects of filmmaking, for example, and exposing, you know, young people to, you could have a career, you could be a creator in, 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 in this industry. You could help facilitate in this, in this industry. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's important. What does it look like for you particularly when you're kind of accountable to the fans on building an inclusive team. And what is, you know, for you, what does that look like? So uh, it's tough, actually, because I'm of Asian heritage, I'm mixed race. Here's, here's the really tricky thing, right? Trying to find people who are a certain level of quality to also deal with the pressures of the workplace at the level that we're talking about. Trying to find people that have been exposed enough to that, we generally find they tend to be white male. However, that's changing. And so many people I know are are helping make that change. I talk about it in such kind of cold, blunt terms, and there's a lot of grey within all of this too, right? But for example, having more women art directors in our teams. So we have quite a few women art directors who have made it to a certain level and then choose to have a family and therefore they're kind of out of the workplace for a while. And we try and make sure that when they want to come back to work, that we can help facilitate that. We also try and do that for men as well, because there are lots of fathers that also want to be at work, but also see their families. So, you know, one way that we've done that is there's a couple of art directors that I had on my last show, the Two Wonderful Women, where they would job share and they would have a crossover day in the middle. So we find ways of, of making that work. You know, we also sort of say... To, to everyone everyone's got a life you know I've got I've got my wife and two children I have an elderly father you know we everyone has had different aspects to their lives my team and I say to one another listen don't bottle it up come and talk to us if you need to be at home because of whatever it is that's your business just come and tell us and we'll make it work it's really really important because I've been on that situation early in my career I had to deal with bits of racism early in my career I saw other people who were just going out of their minds working every hour that was there and it doesn't have to be that way and it takes people to sort of stand up and say hang on a second this is this is not right we can we can still do great work but we can just do it in a better way and also I think when you're in a position 
you know, as a head of department. I'm not just being an advocate for myself, I'm being an advocate for anyone that works in the art department. It's not an easy business to be in, but it can be better. It can always be better. And it's getting better because people are making it better. And I'm glad you talked about it because when we talk about it, it gives other people permission to think bigger, to think better, and to think outside the box of what has been the normal for this movie. There clearly was a lot of work and a lot of fun. What are you most excited for fans to have seen in this? And like, is there like one thing that you're like, oh my God, we pulled it off? I was really excited about Kang and I'm particularly excited about Jonathan, actually. Jonathan Majors, I've, got, I've just got to say, he is a consummate professional, an absolute legend and a total gentleman. I mean, he, he honestly, you know, he came into the art department. Peyton brought him in. We showed him the world and the artwork and, and, and what have you. And then cut to like several months later, because he was like doing, you know, Creed and all sorts of other things at the time. And then we we're on set and he was on set and he's very much kind of in character. Might be, and he just, he'd just come up to me and then just break character moment, just shake my hand and say, thank you. Give me a hug. Cause I know a lot of this film looks like CGI and a lot of it is, but there are some real physical sets at the core of some of these as well. And he's standing in it in his fantastic costume, you know, by Sammy. And it's a huge compliment when actors say thank you, when, you've created the world in which they can then inhabit as characters. And I think particularly about Kang and I think the, the creation of his time sphere, how that came about and the way that Jesse, the VFX supervisor and, and the VFX teams brought that time sphere to life. When you first see it come to life in, in Janet's homestead, I was really happy about how that looked because it was very true to the art and the designs that I was pushing. I want to thank you so much for taking all of this time. No, thank you. I am a total nerd for finding out how everything is made. And it's so cool to learn about the behind the scenes of this particular movie and all the work that goes into making it seem so real. You know, I can't wait to watch it again with all of this in mind. And next week on the show, I'm talking to one of our amazing Marvel comic creators, Cody Ziegler, who has written for several of our spider heroes, including Spider-Punk and Miles Morales, plus... He was in the writer's room for Marvel Studios' She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, Carr McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill Tuboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina. Wainaina.